Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Tuesday, June 23rd. In today's news, public health officials are leaving their posts in the face of death threats. We probably won't know who won the presidential election on Election Day. And President Trump is increasingly preoccupied with defending his mental capacity. But first, the big idea, which today comes from Richmond, Virginia. Tear gas and spray paint are the smells of this season of protest. Without provocation, police officers tear gassed peaceful demonstrators earlier this month at the statue of Confederate General Robert E. Lee on Monument Avenue. Richmond Police Chief William Smith apologized and said the officers would be disciplined after the department again used chemical gas against protesters, Mayor LeVar Stoney demanded Smith's resignation last week. He said the city is ready for a new approach to public safety. Smith is among at least half a dozen police chiefs to lose their jobs amid the nationwide protests that have followed the killing of George Floyd and the reckoning with systemic racism that endures in law enforcement. Since the start of June, Police chiefs have either announced they will step down or been fired in Atlanta, Nashville, Louisville, Portland, Oregon, and Prince George's County, Maryland. In Richmond, where 48% of the population is black, police are now keeping their distance as protesters occupy the traffic circle where the Lee statue towers 60 feet over the grandest residential boulevard in what was once the capital of the Confederacy. A handful of African-American civilians toting assault-style rifles patrol the site, which is now surrounded by concrete barriers, as a pack of a dozen white counter-protesters roam the surrounding streets with their own long guns. All the guns put everyone on edge. Yet it also feels like a street festival inside the encampment. A few people have pitched tents to sleep the night there. Someone set up a basketball hoop. There's no one in charge, but volunteers are giving out free massages, handing out donuts, and repairing bicycles. Virginia Governor Ralph Northam has ordered the removal of the Lee statue. A local judge granted an injunction last week to prevent that from happening until a court challenge plays out from a descendant of the people who deeded the land to the state when the statue was installed back in 1890. As the two sides bicker over legal standing, a dozen cans of spray paint with every color in the rainbow and more have been left at the base of the statue. Scores of people just passing by have been picking up the bottles, shaking them, and scrawling messages on the granite. The monument has taken on the look of the western side of the Berlin Wall before it was torn down. City police officers now watch this defacement from across the street and do not intervene. Someone has written near the bottom of the monument, quote, This time, it's different. But is it? Is it different? That is perhaps the most significant question of the moment. These protests have certainly felt different than they did after previous high-profile deaths at the hands of police. All the statues on Monument Avenue have been defaced to varying degrees. Even one of African-American tennis legend Arthur Ashe, installed in 1996 to counterbalance all the Confederate memorials, has been vandalized with graffiti that says, White Lives Matter. Other statues in the city have been torn down. It feels inevitable that Lee and his horse Traveler will be gone sooner than later. Most of all, it is especially rare to see so many police chiefs lose their jobs so unceremoniously. 
But Richmond community organizers emphasized during interviews that personnel changes and monument removals are not enough to fix the underlying problems that have led to the anger in the streets. Chelsea Higgs-Wise gave up her job as a clinical social worker to focus full-time on activism after a Richmond police officer fatally shot an unarmed and naked, mentally disturbed black man during a confrontation in 2018. Black Lives Matter activists have informally renamed the square with the Lee statue for that man, Marcus David Peters. Wise is active with the Richmond Transparency and Accountability Project, which has pushed for more data from the city's police department, as well as creating a civilian review board and removing officers from public schools. She told me that replacing one cop for another is not going to meet the demands of the city. And that's true. But there is some evidence that the times are indeed changing. Consider this. The Virginia governor's legal case for removing the Lee statue was devised by the great-great-granddaughter of slaves. No woman, white or black, had ever before served as chief counsel to a Virginia governor before Rita Davis got the job in 2018. The 48-year-old knew the reverence attached to Lee because she had walked by his tomb every day as a student at Washington and Lee University. A scholarship enabled her to be the first in her family to attend college there. She then was a patrol officer in conservative Lynchburg and believed in law and order. But as a black woman, she also felt deeply in her bones the need for change. All those elements are coming together in one unexpected event. The administration is so confident in her legal position that it attempted to take down the statue quietly before Northam publicly announced it. But they could not find a Virginia-based crane company willing to take on the controversial job. At one company, the younger generation was willing to do it, but the older owners threatened to disown the kids and the grandkids if they went ahead. Some legal scholars say the state's case is uncertain. The deed from 1890 stipulates that the statue must be, quote, affectionately preserved. Other court cases have reached a variety of conclusions on such language. There's no prevailing legal norm that would say this is a slam dunk. But the issue could wind up moot if the state invokes eminent domain and simply seizes the statue in the public interest. Davis says she's happy to wait for the case to play out in the courts, In some ways, she says, it's better for the legal system to reach what she says is an inevitable conclusion than for the statue to simply disappear overnight or be yanked down by protesters. She badly wants the statue to come down, of course, but she says she wants it to come down because there is a consensus in Virginia that that's not who we are anymore. And that's the big idea. Here are our three other headlines that should be on your radar. Number one, for Lori Jones, the trouble began early last month. The director of a small public health department in Washington state was working with a family under quarantine because of exposure to the coronavirus. When she heard that a member of the family had been out and about in the community, she decided to check in. The routine phone call launched a nightmare. Someone posted on social media that she had violated their civil liberties and named her by name. Then they posted her home address and wrote, quote, let's start shooting. My colleagues Rachel Weiner and Ariana Cha report that people from across the country began calling her personal phone with similar threats. Public health officials, especially women, are already underfunded 
and understaffed. Now they're confronting waves of protests at their homes and offices, in addition to pressure from politicians who favor a faster reopening, even when it puts lives at risk. The National Association of County and City Health Officials says more than 20 health officials have resigned, retired, or been fired this month for nothing more than doing their jobs and trying to save lives. This month in California, Nicole Quick, Orange County's chief health officer, stepped down after she faced threats and protests at her home for requiring face coverings in many businesses as cases rose. After she left, her mandate was softened to a recommendation. Ohio's public health director, Amy Acton, has shifted to an advisory role after enduring months of terrible anger over the state's preventive measures, including armed protesters outside her home bearing anti-Semitic messages and sexist slurs. Georgia's public health director says she receives threats daily and now has an armed security detail. Pennsylvania's Secretary of Health, who's transgender, has come under fire over the state's handling of the pandemic, including from a county official who resigned after saying at a recent meeting that he was, quote, tired of listening to a guy dressed up as a woman. Four public health officials in Colorado have left their jobs recently under pressure. These folks are heroes, but this is how they're being treated. It suggests that something is rotten somewhere inside the soul of America. Number two. Barring a landslide, we likely will not know the result of the presidential race on November 3rd. After voters in Pennsylvania, Georgia, and Nevada went to the polls this month, some races hung in the balance for days as election officials waded through thousands of absentee ballots. Today, a similar scenario is expected to play out in Kentucky and New York, where officials have already announced that some results will not be available for as long as a week. In all five of these states, officials have contended with an avalanche of mail-in ballots as voters seek to avoid exposure to the coronavirus. Amy Gardner reports that November is likely to bring an even more massive wave of voting by mail than what is swept across the country during the primary season. That, in turn, means that a close race between Trump and Joe Biden in a pivotal state could take days, even weeks, to resolve. Amid that uncertainty... Few expect Trump, who has said repeatedly that he thinks mail-in voting could cost him the election, to do anything to soothe voter anxieties. A volley of warring lawsuits by the national parties could add to the tense environment. Already, lawyers are battling in court fights across the country to shape the voting rules that will govern this election. The situation could plunge our country into an electoral crisis, not seen since the acrimonious recount between Al Gore and George W. Bush 20 years ago. Number three, an early June meeting in the cabinet room at the White House was intended as a general update on Trump's reelection campaign, but the president had other topics on his mind. Ashley Parker and Josh Dossie report that Trump took a cognitive screening test as part of his 2018 physical, and now more than two years later, he brought it up. It was a 10-minute exam. He waxed on about how he dazzled the proctors with his stellar performance. He walked the room of about two dozen White House and re-election officials through some of the questions he said he'd aced, such as being able to repeat five words in order. At the time, the Montreal Cognitive Assessment, which includes animal pictures and other simple queries aimed at detecting mild cognitive impairment in the elderly, such as dementia, was intended to quell questions about Trump's mental fitness. 
The seeming non sequitur was part of the president's growing preoccupation in recent weeks over perceptions of his declining mental and physical health. At a time when critics have mocked him for episodes in which they say he has appeared frail or confused. The attacks Trump has previously leveled against Biden, dismissing the former vice president as Sleepy Joe, secreted away in his basement and enfeebled, have boomeranged back on him as opponents seize on Trump's own missteps to raise concerns. Trump is deeply attuned to any portrayal of him as weak. He was furious. Earlier this month, after news leaked that he and his family were rushed to a secure underground bunker as protesters converged on the White House. He's also refused to wear a mask during the pandemic, despite his own government's guidelines, because he says privately that anyone who wears a mask looks weak. And the president is fuming to aides days later about the small crowd size of his rally in Tulsa on Saturday night. The campaign had claimed a million people RSVP'd, but there were only about 6,000 people in a 19,000-seat arena, according to the local fire marshal. Trump blamed his campaign manager, Brad Parscale, over the half-empty arena. Now campaign officials are engaged in whisper campaigns against their colleagues, and some Trump allies are calling for a dramatic reorganization of the re-election machine, which they like to refer to internally as the Death Star. Trump's re-election team is thinking of how to retool the traditional campaign rally to avoid a repeat of the Tulsa Donnybrook. Some campaign officials are pushing for future rallies to take place outdoors, possibly returning to the kind of airplane hangar events that Trump often held in 2016. But Trump has complained that airport hangars lack the energy of a raucous indoor rally, and he's willing to put his supporters at risk. While Parscale is not expected to be fired over the Tulsa rally, his influence in Trump's orbit is waning. And that's The Daily 202 for Tuesday, June 23rd. Thanks for listening. I'm James Hellman. Stay safe. I'll talk to you tomorrow.